Please hear the word of God from Mark. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so many that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioning him within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Um, if you'll remain standing as we just uh, commend this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we have heard from you through your word. Uh, we now ask your spirit to illumine the eyes of our hearts, illumine this text. Lord, there is a kind of stubbornness that we confess in our hearts to... Um, to not sit in your word and sit under your word, but we would pray by your spirit that we would be soft, uh, that we'd be eager learners, not only hearers, but also doers. Um, Lord, and I would ask that, I, that the meditations of my heart um, and the words of my mouth uh, would be pleasing to you and edifying to this precious church, your body. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Ronnie. If you're new here, I'm really glad that you're here. Just last week, we started a new sermon series on uh, the gospel of Mark. And so basically what we're doing is over the course of about 16 weeks, uh, we're going to study the, 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 these important passages that kind of advance the, the sacred agenda of Mark, the writer, who, who wrote this gospel to answer this question. Who is Jesus Christ, and what's that got to do with me? So last week in chapter 1, we learned that the author, John Mark, he was a, he was a traveling companion with Peter, right, the apostle, and he proposes that Jesus is the Son of God. And we learned that those words in this instance, the, the word Son of God was a technical term used in the Old Testament to refer to the promised Messiah, right? The anointed one, the rightful king of Israel. So, right, David is called the Son of God. And so there's this new David, this new king. But as Mark is showing us, Jesus is not only the king of Israel who's coming to overthrow the 
oppression of the Roman Empire, the aspirations of Jesus Christ are far deeper and far more reaching. The Gospel of Mark is uh, it's known for being like incredibly uh, brief. What takes like the other gospel writers like pages to describe, Mark's going to do it in like just a few sentences because uh, he's really economical in how he tells stories, right? But all of the stories in this gospel are carefully selected in order to help you and I answer the question, who is Jesus? What's he up to? And what's that got to do with me? So let me um, catch us up to chapter 2. So last week, we examined how uh, uh, it begins with Jesus' coronation ceremony, right? He's anointed king, he's crowned, if you will, through his baptism, and he's commissioned to execute his mission to advance the kingdom of God. Now remember, every king has a kingdom, and we're seeing in the Gospel of Mark, what happens when the kingdom comes upon a place. That's how to actually interpret all the stories that come afterwards. Now, since Jesus' baptism, he's been extremely busy. In the second, just in the second half of chapter 1, Jesus calls his first four disciples, and these guys, man, they just drop their nets and go. Then he arrives in Capernaum, starts teaching in synagogues, People are absolutely astonished by his teaching. They've never heard the kinds of things that he's saying. And in fact, they say things like, this one has authority. That's what they say. This one has authority unlike anyone else. His authority is cosmic. So right away, man, he starts casting out demons. He had like demons on the run. Now, I know that's kind of weird uh, for modern audiences. So we're going to keep talking about that as some of these stories come up. But more than that, he starts, um, he starts healing people, right? So he goes to Simon Peter's uh, mother-in-law, heals her, incredible. So by casting out demons and healing natural sicknesses, Mark, your gospel writer, is showing that Jesus' authority is over both the earthly and the spiritual realms. And pretty soon, word gets out. Crowds start forming. They're bringing their sick. They are self-inviting to his house where he's staying. It's packed out. And now Jesus is healing everyone. Now, as you can imagine, Jesus gets a little worn out. So early one morning, Jesus gets out early. He has some alone time with the Lord. That was his custom. Finally, Peter finds him and he says, hey, man, everyone's looking for you. And I'm like, and why wouldn't they? Of course. But Jesus says, hey, let's skip town. Let's head to the region of the Galilee. Let's keep this thing going. So Jesus does more teaching. He does more healing, more casting out demons, and more crowds. Then he returns home, and uh, he moves in with Simon Peter in Capernaum. And guess what? Like the crowds, they didn't go anywhere. They're still waiting for him. That's the context of the story that we just heard. Now remember, this story was carefully selected and told in a certain way because the Holy Spirit has an agenda for both the original audience and for us today. You and I have something in common with the original audience, and it's going to cut into our souls. Here's the thing. Jesus is drawing massive crowds. Why? Why? Because they wanted something from Jesus. And Jesus was more than glad to give it to them. But here's the catch. 
Jesus gave them something far deeper, far more profound than what they were asking. And when you start to think about it, it's a little bit upsetting. It's offensive. Let let me illustrate how deep Jesus wants to go here. Uh, Tim Keller writes this book called The King's Cross. It's like a devotional book through the uh, Gospel of Mark. If you're looking for some devotional material, you ought to pick it up and read that over these next 16 16 weeks. It'll be great. Um, But in the book, he cites a story, C.S. Lewis, uh, an episode from the voyage of the Dawn Treader. So in the book, if you're familiar with it, one of the main characters is a spoiled brat kid named Eustace. Eustace doesn't like anyone, and no one likes him, right? He's selfish, he's mean, he's like the worst, okay? So at one point, Eustace finds himself on an island, and he wanders into a cave, and there are tons of these incredible treasure. And he thinks to himself, I am rich, and I'm going to use my wealth to get back at everyone. So he falls asleep on top of the treasure, and because he falls asleep with these sort of dragonish thoughts in his heart, when he wakes up, Eustace has become a dragon. And now there's no way out. Eustace is stuck. He can't get back on the boat, and he's going to be left all alone on this island forever. One day, the great lion, Aslan, shows up. And Aslan leads Eustace to a pool of water, and he says, undress and jump in. Now here's the thing. Eustace is a dragon. He doesn't have any clothes, right? So what he realizes is that Aslan is asking him to take off his dragon skin. So the boy starts clawing at the scales. It doesn't hurt at all. Some of it comes off, but there's always another layer underneath, right? So Eustace claws multiple times, but there's always more dragon skin. And in the end, the lion, Aslan, says, you're going to have to let me go deeper. Now listen to this brief excerpt from the book. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, I was, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done myself the other three times, only it hadn't hurt. And yet there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker than the others had been. And then he caught a hold of me, And he threw me into the water, and it hurt like anything, but only for a moment. And then I saw I had turned into a boy again. So Eustace's humanity was restored. Just as it was for Aslan to Eustace, we need the Son of God to go deeper than we realize. But it will hurt. It will be upsetting. So that's going to be, with that introduction, that's going to be our, our, um, our framework. Jesus wants to go far more deeper, but it's going to be upsetting. All right, those are our two points for today. Let's start right away with far deeper. So the story we heard in our passage, Mark 2, is really peculiar, right? For buddies and the paralytic. It's an odd story. We see in verse 1, that Jesus returns from his speaking and healing tour in the Galilee. Word gets out, 
So all the crowds come to his house, right? And I mean, listen, when Jesus wakes up in the morning, there people are waiting for him. There's no room, standing room only, it's jam-packed, no more people can get in. And Jesus is not annoyed. He rather compassionately begins to teach them. Now, all of those crowds did not deter a certain group of friends from getting their time with Jesus. So while Jesus is teaching, according to verse 4, the four guys get on the roof. Now, these homes would have been similar to what you and I think about, like adobe-style houses, right? So the roofs had like these cross beams, uh, but the roof itself would be made of like branches and straw. So these guys get up on this roof, and they MacGyver kind of this like primitive pulley system of sorts, right? In order to carefully lo lower down their buddy, their paralytic buddy, so that he could get right in front of Jesus. Now, imagine that, right? So Jesus is like teaching to this packed out house, and it's probably a little dark, right? There's no electricity, some candles are being lit. And then all of a sudden, a ray of light starts breaking through the roof. But it shouldn't be, right? Uh, and, and dust is going everywhere. And now the hole gets so big that like this, this mattress it can fit through it. And they start lowering a guy from this hole. And everyone's looking around going, yeah, I hope it doesn't rain, right? And then Jesus, you know, he looks to Peter and says, Peter, I hope you have home insurance. I mean, he doesn't say that at all. That's not in the text. He could actually care less about the hole, right? What does he say? Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, and when, Je and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now there are two amazing things that you've got to see in verse 5. So two observations. Here's the first one. Jesus is not simply moved to compassion by the paralytic. He is moved by the faith of the paralytic's buddies. Look, it says, what does it say? It says, seeing their faith, collective there. Their, the collective faith of these guys is what, what resulted in this man's salvation. These are true friends. I mean, they would do anything to make sure that their friend has an encounter with Christ. That, that's not private spirituality, is it? God instrumentally used the faith of these men... That was crucial to the salvation of the paralytic. Now that concept's not foreign to the Bible. It's all over the Bible, right? When Lydia, the, the, the broker purple, uh, uh, purple goods, you know, comes in the Lord, she believes and together uh, her whole, it says her whole household was baptized and saved. That's crazy. Parents, here's what you need to hear. Like parents, your faith is instrumental in the salvation of your children. For better or for worse, actually, if you're lukewarm, if your actions and priorities contradict what you purport to believe, then that will actually affect the faith of your children. Your faith is instrumental and it's not neutral. It can engender or derail other people's faith. So, you know, you know as a parent, you gotta ask the question, well, what is your, what message is your faith sending to your children or maybe you can kind of think of it in the reverse as a recipient like whose faith affected you like you are a christian why 
Who was instrumental in your life? Whose faith was instrumental in your life? Whose faith led to your faith? You see what I'm asking? Or just think about you as a person. Is your faith instrumental and contagious in your friend's life? I mean, do you have a friend that you love enough to get into the presence of God? Like these buddies did. This is extremely important to think about. Your faith is never neutral. It's instrumental, always. Now, this um, observation isn't actually even the point of verse 5, because that was so normal in this sort of collectivist culture. The real meat, and here's the second, pas- the second observation, the real meat of this passage is actually in Jesus' pardon in verse 5. After it says, seeing their faith, looks at the paralytic and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now here's the thing. Forgiveness is not what these guys came for. They wanted their buddy to walk again. Right? His body is broken. Now think about this. Like for yourself. Imagine, I don't know, imagine you're suffering from headaches that are absolutely tormenting you. I mean, they're so bad that you're, you're vomiting all the time. You can't function. And so you go to the doctor. And the doctor looks at you and he says, your sins are forgiven. How'd that make you feel? You're like, forgiveness is okay, but you really want the headaches to go away. Because that is what you think is your main problem. See, the paralytic was okay with forgiveness, but he thought his real problem was his broken legs. But that's the thing. Jesus wants to go deeper. See, sin is an affection that is so deep that it touches not just legs, it touches every part of who we are. See, sin, and I know that's a really religious word, has a lot of, uh, I don't know, baggage. But it's not just about doing wrong things. It's not just about our mistakes. It's not just about harming other people. Sin is actually about ignoring God in the world that he made. It's about living in his creation without reference to him. Sin is the fundamental independence that leads one to conclude that I will decide how I will live my life. So sin actually affects us on like a, it's like a brokenness and a a rebellion even on a cellular level. And how do you heal that kind of fatal independence and disinterest in God? See, most of the time, y'all, when God heals our legs, we just simply run faster away from him. Or when God pays our bills, we just recreate so hard so we don't have to think about him. When God puts food on our tables... We become gluttons and full and fall asleep so that we can ignore him. When God puts air in our lungs, we just use our breath and our words to promote our own selfish agenda. Healing the paralysis was what this man wanted, but it's not what he needed. 
Now listen, of course Jesus cares about his broken legs, but he cares more about his broken relationship with God. When the kingdom of God comes, it puts everything, and I mean everything, in right relationship to God. This is heaven breaking in, reversing the fall that has invaded this body. So not only broken bodies are being restored to their creational design, but also a broken relationship with God. It is significant that Mark tells us that Jesus heals a paralytic. Because that particular infirmity for a Jew, according to Leviticus 21, would actually prohibit someone from worshiping in the temple, which for a Jew is accessing the very presence of God. So presumably this physical sickness has caused spiritual alienation. So from the beginning, Jesus was always more interested than simply healing a body. He's always about healing a cosmic relationship. Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, the Son of God, the King, he goes deeper than what we're even asking for. Now that leads us to the second part of our study, the examination of this text. So on one hand, we're really glad that Jesus does go deeper than we realize, but then it hurts, right? Just as it did with Aslan to Eustace. When we ponder this depth, it becomes upsetting. It becomes upsetting. How come? Well, for many people, and, and maybe, maybe you have been seduced into this perspective, I'm not sure, but for many people, we think of Jesus like a personal assistant, someone who fixes the self-sufficient machine that you and I call our life. But he sees our fractured relationship with God, not just our fractured bodies, and he does something about it. See, it's one thing to admit that we need help, but it's a complete undercut to our pride to say that we need to be rescued, right? Because someone who's rescued can't help themselves. That's actually the implicit assault of grace, this word that we love. There's no room for self-sufficiency when you understand it this way. And this helps us to understand these next few verses. So the religious leaders are seeing the bestowal of this forgiveness. And it's surprising. It's actually upsetting. And they start judging in their hearts, right? And their comments and their questions, like in verse 7, are incredibly telling. What do they say? Look at verse 7. He is blaspheming. Like who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, this concept of blaspheming, it's a little odd to modern people. It's an odd word. We actually only use it in modern parlance in a kind of lighthearted way. Like if I said, hey, um, or if you said, let me say this this way. If you said, hey, I don't like Tommy Torres. Oh, you don't even know who I'm talking about. I don't like salsa. I would say, gasp. You take those words off your mouth. You are blaspheming, right? Right Now, to a Jew in the first century, uh, that's serious. That's a serious word. There's no jokes about blaspheming. 
In the first century, blaspheming means to speak harm or ill of God. A person would be accused of blaspheming when he or she purports to speak for God or to do what only God can do. And to be clear, according to Jewish law, blaspheming is punishable by death. Now, y'all remember how last week I said that Mark's gospel describes um, Jesus' death not as this unfortunate ending to the hero, but as the focus and the actual purpose of his life? Well, already in this gospel, in chapter 2, we are seeing Jesus seal his own death. Like in no time at all, the religious people are going to start conspiring to have him murdered. We're in chapter 2. And what is the accusation? Blasphemy. Ironically, ironically, by forgiving sins and healing the sick, Jesus is securing his own death. But how precisely is Jesus committing blasphemy? Well, when the religious leaders ask, who can forgive sins but God alone, that is not, well, they know the answer, right? That's a rhetorical question. They're making a statement. They're not really asking a question. Why? Because only God can forgive sins. Scripture identifies this as God's activity alone. So either he is God or he's a blasphemer. Now listen, every once in a while, kind of around this season, you'll hear like people say, well, Jesus was a wise man. He was a wise prophet, but he never called himself God. False! Don't listen to such nonsense. They're not reading the text closely. By forgiving sin, by personal fiat, he is doing the absolute unthinkable. There's no uncertainty as to what's happening in the scene. This is political and spiritual dynamite. Listen, if... If, if, if Pete Compton goes up to Jason Farrar and punches that handsome face, right? And then I go to Pete and I say, Pete, um, I forgive you. And something weird's happening, right? Because it wasn't me who got punched in the face, right? Farrar is the offended one. And therefore, he's the one who should be able to extend the forgiveness, not just like this third party, well, in this scene, <laughs> Jesus assumes that every sin that's ever been committed is actually a sin against himself, and therefore he's the one who can pardon and who can forgive it. Are y'all seeing this? Are y'all seeing this? Who does that? God does. It's upsetting. Because this means that the religious leaders now have to go through Jesus. Now, they preferred a religious system that made God sentimental, but largely unnecessary. But now, if Jesus is correct, they must go through him. Their, the arrangement is broken, and their pride is toppled. This is upsetting. Now, in verse 8, we're told, like, Jesus can kind of perceive their thoughts, Right? You see that? And so he asks the question, which is easier, 
to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, if you're like me, you're not really sure. You're kind of confused. Like, is this a trick question, Jesus? Uh, which is easier? Now, you can read a bunch of commentaries on this, and every, even the commentaries are a little bit puzzled. But then, in verse 11, Jesus tells the paralytic to get up and go home. And, that, and that's what happens. He does. So which is easier, forgive his sins or to heal him to rise and walk? Well, if Jesus only offers forgiveness and doesn't heal the legs, then the crowds aren't going to feel the weightiness of those words, right? Because it's not verifiable. Can you verify that someone is forgiven? Right. But if Jesus only heals the crowd or heals the paralytic, then the crowd won't actually feel the weight of their sin. So what Jesus does is he uses the verifiable to point them to the unverifiable. In other words, he uses what can be seen to demonstrate unseen spiritual realities, what can't be seen, and it works. Like everyone gets it. Like the crowd gets it. This man gets up, returns home. Mark 12, excuse me, verse 12, Mark tells us that the crowd's glorified God, and, the, and they say, we have never seen anything like this before. What was once thought to be divine prerogative has come to earth <laughs> right in front of them. Now, the author, John Mark, carefully tells the story in a way that highlights the response of the characters. Remember, Jesus is, gives us something far deeper than what we thought we needed, but it's upsetting. But does it have to be? So in this case, we have the, have the crowds who glorify God. And then we have the religious leaders whose anger with Christ is incited. Now, is it just that the religious leaders were just so like in love with God that they just didn't appreciate this irreverent, relaxed uh, posture? Not at all. They had hidden interests which were being thwarted. Their system through relating to God put them at the center of their own religion. And in some ways it put them in control of people. I mean, maybe they, they sprinkled their religiosity with words like Adonai or hallelujah or whatever. But it was all centered on them. God in their system is relegated to a negotiating partner. And as a client, they could determine the rules of engagement. And worse than that, they're, they're putting Christ, or they think they're putting Christ out of a job. Right? Who needs Jesus when you have the system? But if Jesus is who he says he is, their priestly status in society is becoming unnecessary. And their identity and their prestige is all dissipating. And this is infuriating. This is my turf, right? I don't want God messing up the system. This system works for me. God, take some crayons, go color in the corner, right? Now listen, my goodness. This is still the predicament that we find ourselves in today. Jesus is ruining our system 
if he is who he claims to be, then we're getting knocked off the thrones of our lives. It means that we have to go through him, right? It means that our decisions are not our own anymore. We can't just come to church, live a nice life, civil religious system that we constructed as to just really baptize our own personal decisions. Whatever we want, we'll just find a verse to defend what we do. Right? That's a system where we actually don't have to consult and submit to Christ. Can y'all see that? You want a little help evaluating yourself in this text? When you read this story, let's try to mine this for a personal application. When you read this story, who do you identify with? Don't you dare say Jesus. You don't get to play that role. Who do you identify with? The crowds? The friends? The paralytic? Do you have the courage to at least consider that you might have more in common with the religious leaders than you care to admit. Where does it hurt that Christ is interrupting your system? You know how you can discover that? What part of your life do you not pray about? It just doesn't get any prayer, doesn't get any, any time. Jesus, you forgave my sins, what does this mean for my anger? Jesus, you forgave my sins. What does this mean with how I spend my vacation? Jesus, you forgave my sins. What does this mean about my sexuality or lack of it? Jesus, you forgave my sins. What do you expect of how I spend my money or my generosity? Jesus, you forgave my sins. Why do I want grace for myself, but not for my spouse or for my children? Why, why do I feel like they have to go through me? Have I hit everything? Like, can you see how upsetting this is? Although there were crowds, Jesus was less interested in the quantity of the crowds, but he's very interested in the quality of the people's response. What is your response? That's how you let this text do business with you, my friends. So this is a really important story in our journey to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. Right? That's what John Mark wants to answer for us. And when we read it, we realize that we desperately need the Son of God to go deeper than we realize. But when he does, it will be upsetting. Let me conclude our study by bringing your attention to one more detail. So the explanation that Jesus offers in verses 10 and 11 are extremely important. Would you look at those two verses with me? Verse 10, Jesus says, But that you may know that the Son of Man, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now you'll notice in verse 10, 
that Jesus refers to himself in the third person. He calls himself the Son of Man. Now, we've already talked about him being called the Son of God, right? But now here we see the Son of Man. Now, this is actually a title that Jesus is going to use a little bit more frequently. Uh, Jason taught about this title in our church-wide discipleship. But the Son of Man, it's a little bit more obscure, and it comes from Daniel chapter 7, and Jesus is identifying himself as that figure, right? The Son of Man in Daniel 7 is this messianic figure who comes and is presented before God, who is the Ancient of Days. Let me just read Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 to you. Listen to this. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would know him. So, according to Daniel 7, the Son of Man is given dominion and authority as wide as God's own reach. And he has authority over everything, even paralyzed legs. The lame to walk would be easy if that's all he had to do. But he had to do more. He had to deal with sin. Can sin be so effortlessly dismissed? I mean, just by saying it? Oh, you can't just, you can't put a band-aid on our sin. Listen, it's one thing to say your sins are forgiven, completely other thing to make those words true. To say, rise and walk, that's easy. But no one understood how hard it is to offer forgiveness. Sin is only solvable by God. Forgiveness is incredibly hard. It's costly. And that's what this whole Lenten season is about. It cost Jesus everything. It required him hanging on a cross. It required the king to get the crown, but one with thorns. Listen, Jesus has no going deeper with us. Our sin, go deep into him. As deep as nails in a hand, as deep as thorns, His primary purpose and calling as our king. That's what Mark 2 is setting us up for. Would you drive these truths deep, as deep as they can go into your heart? Amen.